Welcome to the Idaho Debates. Tonight, a look at the candidates for Superintendent of Public Instruction. The Idaho Debates is organized by these partners. Funding provided by the Friends of Idaho Public Television, the Idaho Public Television Endowment, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hello and welcome to the Idaho Debates at the Idaho Public Television Studios in Boise. This is the third of four debates we're hosting before the November 8th general election. Tonight, the candidates for Superintendent of Public Instruction take the stage to ask for your vote. The Superintendent of Public Instruction oversees operations at the Idaho State Department of Education. They also serve as one of eight voting members on the State Board of Education and one of five voting members on the State Land Board. I want to welcome our candidates, Terry Gilbert and Debbie Critchfield. Terry Gilbert is the former president of the Idaho Education Association. He's also the former leader of the Nampa Education Association and spent 14 years as a classroom teacher. Debbie Critchfield served as president of the Idaho State Board of Education for two years after being appointed to the board in 2014. She has also served on the Kaja County School Board. I also want to introduce our panel of reporters who will ask the candidates questions. Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News and James Dawson of Boise State Public Radio. I'm Melissa Davlin, host of Idaho Reports here on Idaho Public Television. I'm moderating tonight's debate. Helping us keep time is Fatuma Menengarwa, volunteer timekeeper for the League of Women Voters Education Fund. Each candidate will be given 90 seconds for opening comments and 60 seconds for closing statements. Candidates also have 90 seconds to answer questions and 60 seconds for rebuttals. I'll also allow some back and forth if I think the conversation is productive and educational for voters, while trying to make sure each candidate gets about equal time and full disclosure, Idaho Public Television is a state agency under the State Board of Education. The State Board had nothing to do with the organization or preparation for this debate. We flipped a coin to see who would go first, and Mr. Gilbert, you have that honor. Thank you. I want to introduce myself. I earned my BA in English and MA in Curriculum Development at Northwest Nazarene College. My opponent has one degree, political science. I began my professional life as a teacher in Marsing. I worked in the woods of Oregon as a choker sitter for college pay. I didn't have money, I needed to earn money. My junior and senior years in college, I worked 40 hours a week at the Idaho State School and Hospital for the mentally undeveloped. I took an overload of classes during those days and uh, frequently ate with residents in the mess hall because the food was free for employees. I didn't have any money. I had a passion, however, for being a teacher. My education was not given to me. I earned it. I proudly served as Rotary District Governor and served as president of two local Rotary associations. Service above self is Rotary's motto, and it is mine. I'm not a politician. I'm an educator. When I started teaching our Republican leadership neglected education then, and depending on whom you elect as superintendent, it will neglect education now. Why did I join this race? Knowing that I would be greatly outspent by my opponent who has powerful and deep pocket corporate friends. I think it's past time for a change. I can spark that change if you will allow me. Thank you, Mr. Gilbert. Ms. Critchfield. 
Thank you. Good evening and thank you to Idaho Public Television for the opportunity to discuss important issues uh, related to Idaho and education. My name is Debbie Critchfield and my husband and I, Dave, who is here with me tonight, raised our four children in Oakley where they attended local public rural schools. I served for 10 years on the Casha County School Board. In 2014, I was appointed to Idaho State Board of Education. I spent seven years on the front row of state education, including two as president. And I learned how important it was for a strong educational leader in K-12. I'm running for state superintendent because great schools matter to Idaho. I'm running for state superintendent because our teachers need more, our parents expect more, and our students deserve more. The core of my vision puts skills and work readiness at the heart of an Idaho education. And that starts with our students at the earliest foundations for those that can read and continue throughout as we prepare our kids for their careers and for their lives. I have spent more than 20 years as an advocate for education at every level, including starting as a substitute teacher. And I am ready and prepared to lead on day one. Thank you so much. Our first question is from James Dawson for Mr. Gilbert. And Mr. Gilbert, uh, you're a former teacher and president of the Idaho Education Association, but the IEA is sometimes at odds with schools and uh, district leaders. So what makes you prepared to serve as superintendent in a statewide role? Well, I have dealt with many things in my career. I've been an advocate for teachers. They need an advocate and they still need an advocate. Now, that doesn't mean that the Idaho Education Association will agree with every school district or every superintendent of schools. At this point, I want to mention two, however, Jerry Evans and Marilyn Howard. Now, why am I <coughs> suitable for this job? I have the heart of a teacher. I have been a teacher. It is still a part of me. I have not been an administrator, admittedly. I've worked with many administrators, and I appreciate good administrators. I believe that I have a particular point of view that will be identified by teachers around the state. I am a teacher. And Ms. Critchfield, a similar question. You have experience on the State Board of Education uh, and education task forces, but uh, as superintendent, you would be responsible for the education of more than 300,000 Idaho children. So why should Idahoans trust you with that responsibility? As I mentioned in my opening, I have experience at every, every level. What motivated me to run for my local school board was being in the classroom as a substitute teacher and then serving on a number of volunteer and locally elected positions all the way up. I think it's important to note that the assignment as a state superintendent is very different than that of a classroom teacher. We value and want the skills that a, an energized and passionate, passionate teacher brings to the classroom. And you want the, that same type of energy at the state level, but you need someone who has worked with policymakers, with legislators, who is familiar with working with the stakeholders in the state. And these are all things that I've been able to acquire skills that, that I can bring to the table right on day one of the job. Our next question is from Kevin Richard. Ms. Critchfield, today the first round of post-pandemic National Assessment for Education progress scores came out, and it really was a window into post-pandemic learning loss. Idaho students, Idaho eighth graders, did outperform their peers in math and reading, but scores dropped in fourth and eighth grade across both subject levels. 
if you're elected, what would be your specific strategy to address post-pandemic learning loss? I looked at the scores like you today, and I think there there is a, a celebration of sorts for the work that we've been able to do. Idaho became open and stayed open uh, quicker and longer than other states around us. And, and I want to acknowledge the work that's been done by our teachers and administrators. I think it's also important to, to point out that, that looking at the numbers, there's only a third of our students that are still proficient at those grades as, as we look at that. And so focusing and prioritizing our dollars uh, to go directly to the outcomes that we're looking for, how we prepare our teachers uh, before they get into the classroom, how we help them while they're in the classroom. And again, focusing on the, the foundational pieces are, are so important. There's a lot that teachers are asked to do in the classroom. Let's have a plan, let's have a vision, and, and help our students and our teachers be able to, to get more than a third of them proficient. Mr. Gilbert, same question to you. What would be your specific strategy to address <clears throat> learning loss? During Debbie's record on the state board, we've had three Fs. Our go-on rate has fallen. Students are experiencing faltering literacy skills and teachers are fleeing. They're fleeing to other states where the pay is more sufficient and the attitude by state leaders is much more comforting. The public wanted two things from the Reclaim Idaho money. They wanted early literacy and increased pay for teachers. Under Debbie's administration, we will continue to neglect public education. Uh, calling out two things. Uh, uh, Terry characterizes many of the areas that we have been lagging behind in Idaho, which is precisely why I want to change positions and roles on the State Board of Education. There's only so much that a volunteer appointed person can do. And that is why I am seeking the elected position, so that I can have a stronger say in all of those things uh, that, that he has pointed out. I, I want to call attention quickly to uh, what was pointed out on the go-on rate. I fully believe that the reason the go-on rate has declined over time is because, for the most part, we're not providing the type of relevant high school experience that our students need. That when they show up to high school, they see something that means something to them. And then when they graduate, they've got something to go to. So there are a number of things that I want to address, and it's exactly why I'm here tonight. Let's stay on student achievement, and I want to start with you, Mr. Gilbert, on this. Last week, the state released its latest round of ISAT scores, the Idaho Standards Achievement Test. And what we saw was improvement from 2021, but we saw continued low scores in math, especially high school math, two-thirds of uh, high school students uh, not at grade level in math. This is a chronic problem. How would you address it? It's a chronic problem throughout the nation as well. I do want to say this about Debbie's tenure. Even though she might not have been superintendent of public instruction, she had great power and influence on that board. Now, with regard to helping our students improve, I have proposed tutors. I'm not the only one to propose this. It's occurring in Oklahoma right now, where tutors are in the classroom dealing with the students. I do not want to put all the burden on our practicing teachers. They are overburdened now, and they need help and assistance. And I'm looking for the public help. We could ask 
former teachers, retired teachers, to come back into the classroom, whether it was elementary work or secondary work. Ms. Critchfield, how would you approach uh, problems we're having with math scores? Well, first of all, I would look at the budget line item that we've got. Uh, there's a math initiative on the public schools budget for $1.9 million. I don't know how much of an initiative you can accomplish when you're spreading $1.9 million across the state into our various schools. And so looking at how we prioritize our money is, is critically important. And I look forward to working with the Board of Education as we drive the improvements that we need in math. How do we train and prepare our teachers so that they feel that they have the, the skills and the, the tools that they need? I believe that math has been overlooked. There's been a fantastic focus on literacy, which we need to have, but we now need to also turn our attention equally to math. And I would go lower than high school, Kevin. I would say that we're really struggling. The lowest scores that we have are in that junior high grade band. Our next question is from James Dawson. Uh, Mr. Gilbert, uh, speaking of test scores, the Idaho reading indicator shows that students still have not recovered from learning loss uh, during the pandemic. Uh, in the spring of 2022, uh, only 68% of students were scoring at grade level. And at-risk students such as English language learners scored only 39% right. uh, for that same, uh, same indicator. And some legislators argue money isn't the answer to solving this problem, while others contend that it is. Uh, what should Idaho do to improve our consistently low literacy rates uh, to prepare children for future education? I am shocked, as you are probably, that we have some legislators saying, we can't throw money at this problem. Well, we have neglected the funding of education since I entered the classroom, and it hasn't gotten that much better. So <clears throat> we do need money to improve these scores, and we need teachers and <clears throat> former teachers to work with these students. That's how I would improve. I'm not talking about throwing money at education. I've heard that phrase all of my educational career. I would like to say to legislators, Try it just once. Let's see how it works. Uh, as a follow-up, I, I mean, the legislature did increase the literacy budget to uh, $72 million this year, allowing schools to decide where to spend that share. I mean, what's the role of the superintendent in trying to boost up these scores? It's a very important role, just as it is an important role for those members of the State Board of Education, these influential leaders. <clears throat> Part of my answer is to encourage the teachers in the classroom. I've been in the classroom <clears throat> for hours and hours and papers to grade. I was an English teacher. <clears throat> we can do much better with these scores. I don't want to focus entirely on scores, however. I want teachers to emphasize the joy of teaching and the joy of learning. I've listened to Debbie a number of times. I've never heard her say that phrase, the joy of teaching and the joy of learning. She is or has become a policy wonk and she does a good job in that. I am a teacher and I understand what it's like to be a teacher day after day, paper after paper to grade. I was an English teacher so I understand what it's like. Ms. Critchfield, I want to give you a chance to respond to that. Uh, I would like to point out that how we implement and create our policies adds to the joy of teaching and, and the joy of learning. We want to create an environment where, where teachers are able to fully embrace the art of teaching and, and, and the policy side is important along with uh, how else we, we drive some of the outcomes. And so when we talk about what can we do, 
Well, two things that I can think of. One just happened this last legislative session, and that's the work towards uh, dyslexia. Identifying, recognizing, and making sure that as few students as possible fall through the cracks, so to speak, on those who have some, some issues and challenges with learning. The other thing is, in the, in the grade band of, of K-8, we don't teach teachers to be reading specialists. And for whatever re reasons, um, which I guess I would say lack of leadership over the last eight years, uh, we've got to have a focus on the science of reading and how we prepare our teachers so that when they get into the classroom, uh, they have the skills that they need and feel supported in what they do. And that doesn't take away, again, from the art of teaching, but in my view, it enhances what they are able to do because they, they want their, their students to be successful. It's the first time I've heard my opponent refer to the joy of teaching. The first time. And I've been in various places where she had that opportunity. That's why I say her <coughs> strength is on policy. It's not on understanding the heart of a teacher. I believe I understand that heart. Yeah, Ms. Critchfield, uh, speaking of that policy uh, perspective that you would bring, uh, you know, how can you help nearly the one-third of Idaho public school children who aren't reading at grade level uh, if you are elected superintendent? Well, I think the two things that I addressed before, uh, making sure that the implementation of the new, new dyslexia law uh, gets into play in ways that uh, districts can understand it and that they're able to implement it, that, that's going to be critical in how we build on that. And again, through the science of reading, supporting that, and allowing local districts who have opportunities uh, to build upon successes that they have in their own building. Teachers know what works, and when you get government in the way of that, um, that can impede some of that progress. And, and I think a lot of it also, if we're going to talk about teaching and the joy of teaching and respecting teachers, which I do, uh, we, we want to simplify those roles so that they know that this is the expectations in the classroom, that we get back to those fundamentals and, and have them feel supported and have them feel valued. I have a question. Are you saying <clears throat> that teachers don't know that role now? No, I think teachers know what their role is, but they feel that there are a lot more to being in the classroom. I think that you would say that from when you were in the classroom to now, that the responsibilities and the way teachers feel about what they're asked to do in the classroom is significantly more than what it was five years, 10 years ago. I do agree. I served as a substitute myself, Debbie, in virtually every school in Boise. And because I was a day-to-day -day teacher in my professional life, I know the difference between the work and the energy required of a substitute as opposed to a practicing teacher. And I honor Debbie for the work she did on the state board, but there's much more to this job than being a substitute, Debbie. Okay. We're going to leave it there. The next question is from Kevin Richard for Ms. Critchfield. Ms. Critchfield, this really is a yes-no question, but I'm sure you'll elaborate on it after that. Do you support allowing parents to use public dollars for scholarships for private or religious education? You're right. This is a question that, that requires more to it. I support public schools. I want to say that first of all because that's a critical part and something that, that you and I are going to diverge a little bit on. Um, that's a constitutional mandate. How we support that, I have some places that one, it cannot defund public schools. So my answer is a yes and a no. We don't want to defund public schools. 
and it shouldn't come at the risk of rural schools. What I would like to see is a thoughtful and balanced approach to how we address this. Currently, we allow parents a lot of decision-making within the system itself, whether it's through advanced opportunities, where monies go to private institutions for high school students, or through empowering parents, where they're able to make decisions of how they best see fit to supplement the education of their child. And so this school choice, and I have never said that I supported vouchers, this discussion of, of how we, I guess, uh, open up school choice in other ways is, is one of the, the predominant discussions in education in Idaho today. So if this is more of a yes than a no, and it sounds like it might be, uh, are you concerned that expanding school choice will create some of the same challenges that we've seen with the charter system, where charter schools are underserving rural students or students of color or low-income students? Well, I, you know, I, I don't know that I've thought about it in terms like that. I, I think about what are the educational choices that our students have outside of the most urban areas of our state? And that's why I, I bring up those two points. If we're going to talk about public monies going to private institutions in the K-12 arena, it cannot come at the expense of public schools. If we're just talking about slicing up the same pie, that isn't gonna work. And it cannot come at the expense of rural students where they have limited choices. And frankly, public schools are a school of choice for many Idahoans. And so if we're gonna talk about honoring all choice, it has to be a discussion where we bring people together and we take a look at all of these factors and then come up with something that makes sense. There are other states that are doing this and you know there may be parts of that that work here in Idaho, but we need an Idaho solution that honors all choices. And did you support or could you support something similar to the education savings account bill? that came before the House Education Committee this year that was voted down by the committee? Um, in some forms. I, I think when we look at ESAs, if we're looking at them in terms of a health savings account with tax exemption, there are some similarities. This has not been a discussion that the entire state has been at the table at for. Um, it's been a variety of legislators. It's been different uh, groups that have come forward to say, this is how we want to solve it. There has been no leadership at the state level on this issue to balance all of the interests, particularly starting with that constitutional mandate. So I am open to the discussions. I've been consistent with that throughout my campaign to see what that would look like with those two, um, two places that I indicated earlier. Mr. Gilbert, how open are you to this discussion? You've been fairly outspoken about, uh, about vouchers. I'm very outspoken about vouchers. If you want to kill public schools, let's adopt a voucher program. Let's give money uh, to the voucher program. Let's have those corporate <coughs> uh, greedy voucher people swallow up the money. Our <coughs> genius in this country is public education, public education. So when my opponent says, I don't want to take money from public education for my choice program, it is, doesn't make sense to me. It's like, defund the police. Let's defund schools. I call them voucher vultures. They circle around the public schools. They wait for them to die. They spread messages and rumors about what the schools are doing. Do you know that they're indoctrinating your child? The latest venture was in pornography. They're teaching pornography. Well, after they have 
split the parents from the public schools, then they say, oh, we have this neat spiffy idea. We have this voucher program. Yes, I'm very much opposed to it. And is there any scenario where you could support any form of expansion in school choice? Well, we have school choice now. We have <clears throat> public charter schools. We have home schools. We have uh, public schools. We have magnet schools. We have lots of choices now. We don't have to ruin our democracy in our country by gravitating to a voucher program. I'm opposed to it. The options that we have now are sufficient in your view? I believe they are. Ms. Critchfield, I do want to give you 30 seconds to respond. Thank you. Um, as I've traveled the state over the last nearly 18 months, I have heard from parents at, at every level of education um, and every delivery and every environment. And there are those who absolutely believe that as their parental decisions uh, direct, that they would like to have money that would go towards that. And so I don't think we discount that. Um, it, it isn't to me just a, a black and white. It, how do we come at this in a way that we, we balance the interests of everyone respecting where we are with public schools as a constitutional mandate and find solutions for all Idahoans? Sounds good. It's not good. Next question comes from James Dawson. Uh, Mr. Gilbert, during the special session in September, the legislature approved a major investment in education. How would you best suggest the state implement this $330 million in K through 12 education, not to mention the $80 million allocated for use uh, for in-demand career training? I want to step back and ask the audience, why did the legislature do that? I signed the Reclaim Idaho initiative. My opponent did not. She wants to be the head of the public school system and she did not support Reclaim Idaho. That doesn't make sense to me. So <clears throat> I do appreciate what Governor Little did, but I know why he did it. It was because thousands of citizens forced it to happen. And in that forcing, what Governor Little did was to lower the corporate tax rate. Why do our citizens pay levies now? Because the corporate tax rate is too low and they have to support the levy in order to have a school system for their children. It, the, whoever, I suppose, decided or um, however we arrived at the money aside, uh, how would you spend that money? I would spend half of it on our literacy problem, both math literacy, English literacy, and I would spend half of it basically on salaries, not just for teachers. Do you know that our support professionals, bus drivers, cooks, janitors, are the lowest paid in the nation? That is not right. We got used to it, unfortunately, with regard to teachers until Reclaim Idaho came along and said, we want money for this. Well, I do too, and that's what I would support. And Ms. Critchfield, uh, same question to you. With $330 million you know, at your disposal to try to piece together in your budget proposal, how would you intend to do that? I would look at career technical education. I would look at how we create private-public partnerships so that our students can have apprenticeships, um, how we continue to further um, our vocational training, 
again, going back to uh, the major plank of, of my platform, uh, which is about skills and, and work readiness. I would also look at addressing our facilities issue, which has uh, been kicked down the road so far that our, our schools are suffering because of it as far as the, the budgets and so forth. I, I do want to uh, agree to uh, what Mr. Gilbert said, that I did not sign on to Reclaim Idaho, and, and that was because I did not believe that we needed to raise taxes to be able to do that. And so I was very happy and supportive to see our governor come forward and say, because Idahoans have had a, a good year and the spending and, and the number of factors that went into that, that we were able to address that without raising taxes. And, and I think that that's very important. I'm a taxpayer. I care where my money goes. And I want to care and protect the investment that our taxpayers are making. How we strategically use and look at that money is one of the most critical roles that our superintendent can have. Since you mentioned career and technical education, uh, you had the $80 million pot of money that would go toward in-demand and career tech. Are you saying that you would also spend uh, a fairly substantial amount of the $330 million in K-12 towards that as well? Absolutely. So that $80 million was uh, set aside, if you wanted to use it like that, for the, the uh, higher ed uh, side of things. And so looking at uh, the other $300-ish million, there are ways to do that. And I think we can build bridges from high school to two and four year to other technical programs so that we make it as seamless as possible for our students uh, to, to be able to have whatever they need, the skills, the certifications, badging, however you want to put it, uh, so that they can take advantage of the, the growth in their own backyards. Next I, question. Oh, I'll, I'll give you 30 seconds to respond. I agree with uh, much of what you've said. <clears throat> I graduated from Northwest Nazarene College, a liberal arts institution. I hope that doesn't scare the public too much. It was a liberal arts. Humanities and art should be a part of our development of children, not just vocational, as, as good as vocational is, and I do support that. But I want to make sure that we're talking about the broad range of education and discuss what makes an educated person. It's not just vocational training. Ms. Critchfield, 30 seconds. I think when there is money that uh, districts can utilize to uh, build and strengthen and expand the programs that they have for career technical education, that frees up money to be able to do those other things. The career technical programs are some of the most expensive programs that are offered um, for students because of the equipment, the space, the instructors, and, and that's why I would signal a dedication and a priority of those monies. We're going to move on. The next question is from Kevin Richard. Ms. Critchfield, if you're elected, you're going to be tasked with bringing policy proposals and budgets before 105 legislators with very different opinions, including legislators of your own party who may have very different opinions about the vouchers, about uh, spending priorities, budget priorities. What have you done in your career that shows that you would be able to work with this legislature? Uh, specifically, the, the last seven years, minus the last year while I've been campaigning, uh, that, that was a focus of, of what I did, going back to policy and, and other initiatives, working with the governor's office, putting together uh, a plan, and how much money is it going to cost to get us to this place? What should the outcomes look like? What's the accountability that's attached? What is it that we're trying to achieve? And uh, developing those relationships uh, not only is beneficial, uh, but it was one of the most enjoyable parts of something that I did on the State Board of Education. And so as I look through this budget, and I, I made a commitment early on in, in my campaign that I would do a, a thorough review and audit of, of where our dollars are going, 
Are, are they getting us the ROI that, that we expect? And, and that's what I've been working on um, and will continue to work on and, and bring something to the legislature, work with people, cooperate, and find those shared places where we get along and uh, agree on the plan for kids and then work together. And when there isn't agreement, are you prepared to push back against even members of your own party if they're taking education in a direction that you can't support? I would say yes, uh, understanding that my first place and first goal is to find those places where, where people get along. And I, I think that that's one of the things that had made me successful um, on the board and as president uh, that, that we're able to work through and, and find things that, that we could work on together. And I don't always agree with my own husband. And so I would expect that there would be disagreements with others, but you can do it respectfully and, and find those places to work together. And Mr. Gilbert, as a Democrat in a Republican state house, how would you be prepared to work with the legislature? I want to talk about the cornerstone movement, but before I do that, I want to say I have been in a number of places where Debbie has spoken. So I have a sense of her. She is not a fighter. I am a fighter for public education. And I'm going to form a cornerstone movement of public who are willing to fight for what they believe. We just saw that with Reclaim Idaho. So I'm going to organize those folks, and when they need to make calls or go down to the legislature to express the public's will, I'm going to ask them to do that. Am I going to get along with people? Generally, I get along with people very well. However, I said I'm a fighter, and I'm not going to allow the legislature just to roll over the public when it comes to public education. And in what direction would you take that fight? I mean, is there a quick win that you think you could uh, shepherd through the legislature? A quick win? Is that what you said, uh, Kevin? Yes, a quick win. I, I think this is a long-term effort. So the legislature will know that there's a public out there paying close attention to them. This public wants good public education. The polls show that. And I'm going to be an advocate for good public education and a fighter for good public education. Ms. Critchfield, uh, because he mentioned you, I will give you 30 seconds to respond. Thank you. Um, I, I am a fighter for education, and, and I, I guess that has a different look and feel uh, for, for my opponent. I, I believe that not just Idahoans, but Americans are looking for cooperation and getting something done in government. And, and so I don't think you have to be adversarial and controversial uh, to be able to work towards those goals. The next question is from James Dawson. Uh, Mr. Gilberts, some legislators are already campaigning on uh, getting what they call smut out of public schools, libraries, et cetera, uh, dominated the headlines in the earlier part of the uh, legislative session earlier this year. Um, local school districts have banned some books that they deem inappropriate, largely books that focus on gender or race. What do you see as your role in ensuring schools uh, and their libraries have a diverse but appropriate uh, collection of books, and should local school districts set their own policies to that regard? Well, local school districts set their own policies now. But what is happening, one takes a step back, is that we're seeing the squeezing of the American mind, the diminishment of the American mind. <clears throat> My Rotary Club passes out school dictionaries to elementary 
schools. I've been a part of that and a proud part of that. Do you know that in Texas, the governor, DeSantis, stopped that practice because they didn't want <clears throat> go say gay. They didn't want the youngsters to put the words together, I guess. That is the shrinking of the American mind. It's dangerous to our democracy and it is being propagated by people who do not enjoy democracy. Those books in the libraries are selected by trained adults looking for books to educate, not indoctrinate their children. But do you think that some state lawmakers say that the state should have more of a role in uh, what is put on the shelves of local libraries? Do you think that there should be a statewide policy? Are these the same legislators that have cheered for local control? Yes, they are. Local control has a limited life with some of these legislators, and local control becomes state control. I think <clears throat> these decisions should be handled on the local level, conversing with their educators, librarians, whom the legislators have threatened to imprison and fine, by the way, and I believe that's wrong and dangerous for our country. And Ms. Critchfield, same question. What role do you see uh, the state playing in uh, whether or not local school boards uh, and districts should set their own policies with regard to appropriate materials for school libraries? I'm a strong proponent of local control. Obviously, as a former local board member, I would feel like that. And uh, Boards can and should make these policies uh, to inform the public on what their process is. I think the gap here is the communication and the transparency of what the process looks like. I haven't talked to a school board member or a teacher or a librarian who is actively pursuing having unfit and inappropriate material in a school library. But I also know that the library books that are purchased go through a different process than the ones that are adopted for a classroom, whether it's a math ad adoption, a math curriculum, or, or, or any other curriculum that's adopted. It's important for the community, for parents to understand this is the process by which these decisions are made, and then set out the process by which the community can provide feedback to the local board. These are things that a state superintendent can not only help champion, but can help guide the process. Next question is from Kevin Richard. Ms. Critchfield, after the mass shootings in Uvalde, Texas, uh, the Twin Falls School District agreed to pay to hire 10 armed security guards to put in the schools on top of the agreement that they already had in place with local police. Do you support this policy? And, and maybe more far-reaching than that, what is the strategy that you would deploy in terms of school safety? So school safety specifically, or just as a follow-up to the, your question, or a question on your question, or specifically about the, the, the guards at Twin Falls, or just? The guards in Twin Falls, but maybe more globally, what would your policy, your position be on enhancing school security and safety? Well, I think it needs to take in a number of factors. Uh, that would include facilities. That, that's a, an issue that, that we address. And it also needs to take in the behavioral health. Uh, many of our school districts are running supplementals so that they can partner with, a, with local law enforcement to have someone in the building. Now, if a district decides that they want to have uh, more armed guards, 
we should allow them the flexibility within their budgets to be able to do that. That again is a local decision. That, that authority needs to, to be intact, but it can be supported from the state uh, with good practices. Here's what's happening nationally. But I, I think we've got to look at more than just the facilities issue, but again, going to the behavioral health. What is it that the schools are trying to accomplish? And, and making sure that they're supported. We've got the Office of School Safety and Security that is a, a great partner to help address some of those things. And having open conversations about how we protect students and teachers and communities. Mr. Gilbert, where do you stand on armed security guards? Thank you. I'm stepping a couple of steps back on this conversation. Is this not a very sad subject that our children are going to schools with the fear that someone with an assault rifle is going to come in and blow them away, literally blow them away, as it happened in Uvalde. And at some point, as American citizens, we have to say, this is enough. It's more than enough. It's grievous. I agree also with putting police in the buildings and, <clears throat> and making the buildings stronger. But that's a sad answer to a very difficult question. <clears throat> yes, we need to support our police. Yes, we need stronger buildings, but we also need some common sense in this country. I used rifles when I was a child, trained by the NRA. It's a different era now, and the death of children is kind of ho-hum in our country anymore. We had a couple of children dead today from guns. At some point, we're going to have to say, enough is enough. Mr. Gilbert, there have been movements in the legislature, proposals in the legislature to make it easier for school employees to carry concealed weapons. Where do you stand on that? <clears throat> Again, that's a grievous issue, isn't it? That Mr. Gilbert would go into the Marsing classroom and he would have a gun on his hip. He would be trained to shoot that gum, gun. What a sad commentary on our country, that we would even contemplate having to have teachers carry guns. I'm sure, though, that when it happens, this is sarcasm, pardon me, that if someone came into a building, the teacher would stay calm, reserved, aim the gun or the rifle in the, direct, in the direction it should, and not harm a child. It's just a very sad subject that we have gotten into as a country. Ms. Critchfield, where do you stand on that idea? A local decision, and there's statutory authority already for board members to be able to do that. I'll tell you, um, when you listen and talk to people uh, who have had the sad occurrence of uh, any type of school violence, and we saw this in, in Rigby uh, recently, I uh, attended a, a conference virtually uh, where uh, the law enforcement went through step-by-step step of, of what had happened. And then to talk about it later and, and realize for that community, there was an expectation that they had some armed individuals. Now, the, the board required uh, that the, the, those who did go through the reserve training and have level one law enforcement reserve training, which level one is the highest, not the first. And I think there's a responsible way to do this. Um, I agree with Mr. Gilbert that it is, um, it's really puzzling and just, it, it's a tragedy that we even have to talk about it, but we need to talk about it. And we need to make sure that our school districts feel as though someone is supporting them in their decisions so that when they are making uh, very significant decisions around school safety, 
that they have the best information possible. The next question is from James Dawson. You don't want me to respond? I'll, I will give you 30 seconds to respond if you'd like. When Columbine happened, I was in tears. I was home alone watching television and there was Columbine. Schools should be sacred places. They should be protected places. But the protection comes from within the heart more than the building. So I guess that's all I, I will say about that subject. It's a sad subject to me. And the next question is from James Dawson. Yeah, Ms. Critchfield, you brought up behavioral health. Uh, Idaho's teen suicide rate is double the national average according to the United Health Foundation. What should be done uh, by the state to improve mental health, anxiety, depression, all of these issues that uh, are so prevalent in our schools these days? This is another example of how the state can provide leadership and best practices uh, from examples not only nationally, but, but here in our own state. Uh, while um, an employee for the Kaja County School District, um, I, with the, the school board members, helped initiate several programs because there's no silver bullet for this. That there's a variety of ways. I believe that the best way to address this is through a public-private partnership where we're referring out and up. Uh, school teachers, bus drivers, cafeteria workers, whoever you are, they're in a, a great position where they interact with students on a regular basis to be able to recognize things that, you know, gosh, that student doesn't look or act like they have been in the past. Now what do we do with that information? And parents don't know where to go. And in Idaho, you either go to the emergency room or you call law enforcement. Neither one of those solutions are what a parent needs in a time of crisis. And so they look to the schools for those answers. And so let's continue to build upon many great models that we have in our state, site-based therapists, uh, partnerships um, that, that help parents know that they can go get help for their child. In 2018, you wrote a letter saying that K through 12 administrators reported spending half of their time uh, dealing with students' emotional needs uh, despite having these full-time counselors within the schools. Uh, what have you done to address this and, and why are we still seeing such poor numbers? Well, if I had the answers on how to increase all the numbers, um, I'd be sharing them, them widely. It goes back to what I was saying, increasing uh, the access uh, to mental health professionals, clinicians, uh, things that we can do at schools that, that are appropriate. Teachers aren't licensed therapists, and they, they want to teach. They want to help kids, too. Uh, but looking for opportunities uh, to get parents help so that they can help their child. We're woefully behind on the ratio of counselors to students. That's an area that we can look at. And um, again, helping our, our, our students um, see that there are a lot of opportunities for them to access help, that it's OK to say that, that you need help. We've got work to do here. Mr. Gilbert, same question. How would you prioritize students' mental health if you were elected? Yes, 10% of our students have attempted suicide. 13% Hispanic students. There is the Safer Schools Act, I think that's the correct title, which allows one to use Medicaid to seek behavioral counseling. We're in a state that doesn't like the federal government, and they make it known, don't they? Even though they're on land that was settled by the federal government, we have to get over that attitude. Our parents need help. And if it's as easy as seeking counseling, parental help, parental permission, 
we have the ability to do that. We can save lives. We may have to change some of the attitudes in Idaho that the federal government from time to time can be a great help to us. The next question is from Kevin Richard. Ms. Critchfield, we're seven years into the career ladder initiative to boost teacher pay, but the teacher shortage is, uh, is not getting better. And what we heard last week was that districts are still dealing with 134 openings in the middle of a school year, many in special education. Is there a button to push or a lever to pull that we haven't done yet to address the teacher shortage that, that you would pursue if elected? There's definitely been progress uh, with the career ladder. Um, I like to talk about the non-financial side. Compensation is huge and, and is a priority, but it's also not the long-term motivator. There are non-financial ways that, that we can support teachers to help them feel valued in the profession. I see so many similarities between the teaching profession now and law enforcement. Uh, it's not just the compensation, but it's also how they feel valued, the extra assignments, the roles that we have. When I talk to teachers around the state, as I have, the number one thing that I get asked about is not about money, but it is about how they deal with severe behaviors. And, and that touches into the special ed areas. Those are some of the, the most uh, challenging situations that many of our teachers and paraeducators are in. We have got to supply them with, the, with uh, skills and, and protocols um, that they're able to deal with, with students that Again, severe behaviors and, and disruptive. That is one of the, the biggest things that I've heard from teachers that are driving them out of the classroom. And Mr. Gilbert, you spoke earlier about putting a, a good chunk of the $330 million from the special session into staff salaries. What else would you propose doing? What else do you think we need to do in terms of addressing the teacher shortages? Idaho Education News the other day ran a conversation with Idaho teachers Caitlin Pankow, English teacher from Pocatello said, we're educated, we're dedicated, and we're here for a reason. We should be trusted and we're not. Another teacher said, so many teachers are walking on eggshells right now, worried about what they're teaching and what they say, the interactions they have, and that is a real thing. As far as I know, the, the fellow who gave that quote was the son of a former Idaho superintendent. These are very good people. So the depression and the behavioral issues are not just student-centered, they're also teacher-centered. So how do we solve that? Well, here's one simple thing. Send a teacher a note, a handwritten, warm-hearted note, expressing your appreciation for the work that they do so they understand that the public is in back of them. Now, with regard to behavioral help, I hope I'm not uh, uh, repeating something. <clears throat> There's a ratio of school psychologists, one per 500 school psychologists, 500 students, and one for 250 for counselors. We need to make sure that our schools are taking advantage of those issues and those resources. Dawson. Mr. Gilbert, uh, Idaho's immunization rate for children in school has decreased since 2019. Uh, in the most recent school year in 2021 and 2022, uh, the immunization rates of those in kindergarten, first, and seventh grade uh, dropped to 80.2%, which is uh, barely above the 80% threshold for herd immunity um, uh, that's believed to be 
herd immunity, at least for polio. Um, does the superintendent have a role in trying to boost these numbers? And if so, what would you do? Well, I would have a role in it, if nothing else, to talk to the public about it. I had a dear friend die from COVID. I still remember the phone call I received from him. He was in the hospital and he said, Terry, I'm scared. What could I say to that man? He died. Well, we have students who've died as well. And we have adults that are railing out against COVID's, uh, the, jot, the jots, I'm sorry, the shots for COVID. I'm a Rotarian. We have made as one of our issues the elimination of polio. Guess how one does that? Through vaccinations. That's how one does that. So we have to have a much better attitude about COVID and how we deal with it. And it's going to be through immunizations. And Ms. Critchfield, same question to you. Uh, do you believe that the superintendent has a role in promoting vaccinations among public school children? And if so, then what would you do? In as much as it follows the current statutes with Idaho Code. So there are some laws surrounding that, how you work with super, or superintendents, I guess, in school districts uh, for how they message and how they promote to parents so that they're, they follow the law. Ultimately, those are, those are parent decisions. And uh, schools know that. That doesn't keep them from communicating this is what's required and here are the ways that, um, that that's addressed. Well, since you brought that up, I mean, the legislature has made it easier for parents to bring these exemptions for state vaccination guidelines. Do you support those relaxed standards where uh, you, parents may opt their children out of, of those vaccines? Uh, I, I support the parent decision in their child's life. So I guess if that means what you're saying, uh, parents are the primary stakeholders in their child's life. This is a typical answer from Debbie. Local control. We don't have any other role. We don't have a role to speak out for parents to get vaccinations. Almost out of time. It's almost time for closing statements. And so I'm going to ask each of you to keep the following answer to 30 seconds, please. If you're elected, Mr. Gilbert, do you hope to promote pre-K funding? And if so, what plans would you have for implementing that program? <clears throat> Understand that I, I was uh, an attend a student as a pre-K young man in the mud puddles of Oregon, actually, which is to say I enjoyed my time. I support pre-K, and I'll leave it at that. I support pre-K. I think it would be a blessing to our parents to have pre-K, and it would help our literacy rate, by the way. Ms. Critchfield, if you are elected, do you hope to promote pre-K funding? And if so, what plans would you have to implement the program? Yes, and I have been a proponent of that while I sat as president of the Board of Education. That was an initiative that we had with a, an entire literacy package. I would continue to promote that. I think allowing flexibility for local budgets so that they don't have to go to their local taxpayer to support those things. If a community wants to have full day kindergarten or a preschool program because that's what the patrons want, we should enable school districts to make that decision. Thank you so much. It is time for our closing statements. And as a reminder to candidates, you have 60 seconds for close. Mr. Gilbert, you are up first. Thank you. Thank you to the audience for allowing me to come into your home. I'm very serious about education. 
I wouldn't be in have been in education this long had I not been serious. I want our legislators and other officials to speak to teachers about how much they're appreciated and provide the resources, not just the morale, but the resources to these fine people. I love my teacher family and they need our support as do the educational support professionals in our schools. I thank them for their work. Okay, thank you so much. Ms. Critchfield, your closing remarks, please. Thank you, and, and thanks again uh, for the opportunity to come tonight, and thank you, Mr. Gilbert, uh, for the discussion. Uh, this is an important topic, and, and I always argue that it's the most important position in our government as we look over our children and, and how we can best help them. The last two years has been the, the biggest disruption in education in, in modern times, and I believe that it accelerated and intensified the feelings that we all have about how we want to help our kids. I am in a position to do that. I am so hopeful about education. I want to be that champion and that advocate for all that are involved. And it's not just about resources. We also need a leader with a plan. And I have that and I'm ready to serve. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much to candidates Terry Gilbert and Debbie Critchfield for your time tonight. Reporters Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News and James Dawson of Boise Public Radio for the great questions and to our viewers at home for watching. Be sure to tune in October 28th for our Lieutenant Governor debate between candidates Scott Bedke and Terry Pickens-Manweiler. And you can go to IdahoPTV.org slash Idaho Debates to watch any of our past debates that you may have missed. Remember, the general election is November 8th and early voting has already started. If you haven't already, you can register to vote at the polls. And remember, because of redistricting, many polling locations have changed, so be sure to look up your new polling place at VoteIdaho.gov. And if you, as you know, or probably noticed, there are a lot of topics that we did not get to tonight. Our friends at KTVB in Boise are holding another superintendent of public education debate. That's tomorrow. You can go to their website, KTVB.com, for more information. Thanks so much again for watching, and we'll see you at the polls. The Idaho Debates is organized by these partners. Funding provided by the Friends of Idaho Public Television, the Idaho Public Television Endowment, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.